Thanks for listening. The following is an audio presentation from High Country Christian Church. For more information, please visit www.highcountrychristian.com. Turn with me, if you would, to Philippians, the book of Philippians chapter one. We are in part two of our summer series on the book of Philippians. I don't have a clever title for the series, so we're just calling it the book of Philippians uh, because that's what it's called. So we're going to be continuing in that this week. And last week, um, I tried to give just some history and some background on the book and on Paul as he was writing the book, and hopefully that wasn't too boring. Uh, I know sometimes the, uh, you know, the historical side of things can get a little dry, but uh, y'all persevered through that, so thank you very much. Now we're going to get into the meat of the verses. Let me do a very quick review of what we talked about last week, Uh, and hopefully as we take our time through this book, we're going to get the most that we possibly can out of it. We're not going to rush through the scripture. We're going to let the Bible talk to us this morning and in the coming weeks. Amen. And I want to encourage you too, if you're getting value out of this online this morning, would you give us a thumbs up, a like, a comment, share this with people because I believe that people need the word of God more now than they ever have. So thank you for being engaged with us this morning. Quick review. The city of Philippi was once part of the region of Macedonia, and the city of Philippi lies, uh, the the ruins of it today lie in what is now northeastern Greece. So you can go to the northeastern part of Greece and still see some of the ruins of the city of Philippi. This book and this city were significant for two main reasons. Number one, the church that Paul started in Philippi was the very first church that was ever started in Europe. Most, uh, most of us, when we think about ancient European churches, we think of big places like Rome or Paris or you know, places where there's big monuments and old cathedrals and stuff. Uh, all of that stuff happened way later. Philippi was the first European church to ever exist, which is pretty interesting. Paul started it on his second missionary journey through Asia Minor and into Greece, And it was, in fact, the second church that he ever planted, period. So this was very early in Paul's ministry uh, and obviously very early in Europe. The second reason that it's significant, and this is probably more, more significant than the first reason, but the second reason is that it's the only church who ever partnered with Paul in the spreading of the gospel. The Philippian church was the only church who ever partnered with the Apostle Paul in the spreading of the gospel. Paul, as a result, has such a love and such an affinity for the people of Philippi. I said last week, he treats them like insiders. When you're you're reading this book, you're reading a man who is speaking to his children in the faith. These are the people that he loves, and they're, they're his people. These are his folks. And so Paul really, really has a heart for the Philippian church. And as As a result of that, he talks to the people of this church with the intimate tone of a father speaking to his children. We said that there are two major themes to this book. Number one is joy, and number two is partnership. The two major themes of the book of Philippians, joy and partnership. The word joy or rejoice, one of those two, is used 14 times in the book of Philippians which is pretty amazing considering this book only has four short chapters. It's really one of the shorter books of the New Testament, one of the shortest of Paul's epistles, and it's 
got this word joy and this word rejoice that pops up 14 times in four chapters. And then the second, of course, is the theme of partnership. So that was pretty easy review, right? That was quick. We got through that fast. Now, I want to jump into what we want to talk about today. We're going to dive into the first 11 verses of chapter 1 and pull some things out of these verses. As we do that, let me share this thought with you. Typically, Bible teaching can be grouped into two large categories, two different types, if you will, of Bible teaching. Uh, The first one is verse-by-verse teaching, or what is called exegetical teaching. You may have heard that word exegetical before. Uh, That's the first type of teaching, and it goes verse-by-verse-by-verse-by-verse. The second type of teaching that you you often have is conceptual or topical teaching. It's where a pastor or a preacher will take a subject and try to do uh, his best to teach on that subject based on what the Bible says as a whole. Um, Both of those styles have their place in preaching, and both of them come with their own pros and cons. You have some people who really, really favor exegetical teaching. Don't preach the Bible if you're not going line by line. And then you have some people that really favor topical or conceptual preaching. They say, well, I just want to talk about love and say what the Bible says about love. Uh, Both of them are good and have their place in Scripture. Topical Preaching is what a lot of pastors love because they have the freedom to teach on a single subject and use different portions of the Bible to explain that topic. With this method, the teacher or the pastor must be careful to not unintentionally take scriptures out of their context and unintentionally twist a scripture to say something that it's not saying. I think we've all probably experienced that before, right? I've experienced it on both sides of this pulpit, and so uh, I know the the importance of that. Verse-by-verse or exegetical teaching is the preferred method of the professor or the theologian. Pastors love to teach topically. Theologians love to teach exegetically or verse-by-verse as they rely heavily on the context of the surrounding verses to give them the freedom to dive deep into the Scripture one line at a time. With this method, the teacher must be careful not to get so deep in the text that they lose sight of its theme and uh, also lose the attention of the listener, which I realize I may or may not be guilty of right this second. I want to make sure that you're still with it. My wife just said, yeah. (laughs) Why am I telling you about any of this? Well, because my approach to our interpretation and teaching of this book called Philippians is is an attempt at a hybrid of these two styles. My goal is to uncover the topics of these chapters and rely upon the surrounding verses to establish the context and get us all to arrive at the same point that the Apostle Paul is making for us in Philippians. Uh, I, I really want to work diligently as a pastor, and I do this all the time, to try to get all of us to arrive at the same point by the time the sermon's over. I learned from a, from a dear mentor of mine. He said, I never preach a conclusion. He said, I always, I always preach in a way that tells enough of a story and leads people to the place that we all arrive at the same conclusion together. And so that's my goal as we go through Philippians. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. We're going to focus on verse 5 and 6. 
and we're going to rely on all those surrounding verses to give us great context, okay? So I want to I lead us through beginning in verse 1, and we're going to read all the way down through verse 11, and then we'll make some comments. Is that okay? Y'all still with me? I haven't bored you to sleep yet with uh, exegetical teaching. Okay. All right, here we go. Philippians 1.1 says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you with all joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to thank to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What an awesome introduction to an awesome letter. You remember I said this last week that this is Paul's thank you note to the Philippians. Do you remember that? The Philippians had sent him this giant offering uh, while he was in prison. They heard of the fact that he was in prison, and they sent a man named Epaphroditus. You remember us talking about him last week? Epaphroditus went with an offering from Philippi and traveled to Rome, where Paul was imprisoned while he was writing this letter. And they brought him this beautiful offering, and then Epaphroditus stayed for a little bit and spent some time with Paul and Timothy, who was also there. Uh, and we believe Luke was also there as well. And Paul is just so overwhelmingly grateful that the Philippian church once again would send an offering and be thinking about him and be caring about him, be looking to see how can we be a blessing to this man of God named Paul. And uh, so this book, Paul wrote this as a letter, gave it to Epaphroditus and sent it back to Philippi and said, take this and read this to everybody there so that they know how much I love them, so they know how much I can care for them. So you just see, in the, especially in these first 10, 12 verses, you see this overwhelming gratitude in Paul. You see him like a father talking to his kids, just saying, man, I love you guys. And it's really, really wonderful. It sets the tone for the rest of the book. Now, I want to go verse by verse until we get to verse 5, and then I want to dig into verse 5 and dig into verse 6, and then go back down through verse 11. <clears throat> Excuse me. Verses 1 and verse 2, of course, are very, very similar to the rest of Paul's writings. Paul, a bondservant of Christ. Paul and Timothy, bondservants 
of Christ. Paul announces, I love this about the Apostle Paul. He doesn't, he doesn't introduce himself as the mighty apostle. He doesn't say, Paul, the apostle, super renowned, amazing, and filled with power and glory, and so much better than the rest of you. He doesn't announce himself with his position. He announces himself with his decision to serve Jesus. Wouldn't it be cool if we all knew each other based on how devoted we were to Jesus? Wouldn't it be cool that instead of, you know, uh, you know, talking about all of our great exploits in the ministry, we just were able to relate to one another because of the fact that we're so in love with Jesus. If I just stood up and said, it's so great to be here, not because I'm a pastor, but just because I'm head over heels in love with the king of the universe. Wouldn't that be cool? That's how Paul very intentionally introduces himself in every single one of his writings. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints of Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and the deacons. Obviously, you see from the end of verse one that Paul did a very good job of being a great leader, that he set people in place so that as he traveled on and left Philippi to start other churches, he entrusted that work to faithful people who would carry it out while he was gone. And so, of course, as a good leader and as a good dad, he is acknowledging the people that he set in place there. These, these things are things that we glaze over when we read them, but they're really, really important, especially if you were a bishop or a deacon in Philippi. How cool would it feel to be called out by the Apostle Paul? Hey, he didn't forget about me. Hey, he's right. Yeah, he made me. Oh, do you remember, you remember Johnny, when, when Paul made you and me deacons before he left to go on to Corinth? Wasn't that awesome? It was such a good time. Oh, man, I, I can remember how he laid hands on me and prayed things over me. And now Paul's remembering those guys, and he's calling them out in his letter. That's such an act of a father. That's such a loving thing to do. Verse 2, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul never goes very far without talking about grace. He never goes very far. He doesn't go very long without talking about how good the grace of God is. That's something we need to never forget. We need to never forget how valuable, how incredible, how amazing the amazing grace of Jesus is in our lives. Amen? So he says, grace unto you and peace. How many of you could use a little bit more peace in your lives, especially in times like these crazy times that we live? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm constantly amazed at Paul's optimism, especially in writing a letter like this. The dude is in prison. He's in prison, and he has the gall to pray for peace for somebody else. I mean, if I was in prison, I would be blowing God's phone up talking about, I need some more help down here. I need some more peace. I need some more grace in my life. Forget those other churches. I need grace and I need peace. But Paul, because he's such a loving guy and because he's so grounded in the things of God, he has the fortitude that even while he is in prison to pray for grace and peace to be multiplied to somebody else. Isn't that incredible? That kind of stuff blows me away. This is what a good leader looks like. Not selfish. Not selfish. Not about him. It's about them. Verse 3, he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Now, we talked a little bit about this last week, so I don't want to go too deep into it. But this is just amazing. Verses 3 and verse 4 are so incredible 
that Paul is saying literally every time he thinks of the Philippian church, he prays for them. He doesn't let a thought go through his head for them without praying for them as well. And he says, I make requests always, look at verse four, always in every prayer of mine, I make requests for you with all joy. That means every single time Paul even prays, he's praying for these guys. Wow. Talk about the caring love of a father. Then he gets on to verse five and he says, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. I want to focus on this verse for just a couple of minutes. Because of the word fellowship. Paul, remember, remember we said that, the, that the, um, the second big theme in this book is partnership. You remember that? This is the first place Paul introduces the concept of partnership. And he uses such a strong Greek word to do it that we, we can't pass it by. Paul talks about their partnership and their fellowship with him in the gospel. He commends them for their absolute partnership with him in seeing the gospel established in their city. The word that he uses here for fellowship is the word koinonia. Koinonia. You've probably heard that word before. Let me tell you what it means. It means fellowship, association, community, that's a, that's a popular word that we use a lot today in the modern church world, the word, the word community. Well, what is the word community? It, it, the, that word's very present in the Bible. It's the word koinonia. Fellowship, association, community, communion, joint participation, and intercourse. Whoa. That's kind of intense. You see, one of the things, one of the things that I have not liked about our use of the word community is that we use it in a very convenient sense. We say, well, oh man, I'm not having good community at this church, so I gotta go find another church where I got better community. And that's important and that's valuable for sure, but the reality is there's a deep sense of commitment that comes with the notion of koinonia. Koinonia is what I have with my wife. We're deeply committed to each other. Come hell or high water, things get crazy, we're committed. We're sticking it out together. Look at the commitment that these amazing Philippians had made to their apostle Paul. You remember when, when Paul went to Philippi, right? This was, this was not a great part of his missionary journey. He goes to Philippi, he finds two or three people that, have, that know Jesus, and he starts to minister to them, and the people in the city get mad, and y'all remember the whole story, he and Silas get thrown into jail, they get flogged and beaten, and, and even while they're in jail, remember, Paul's a super optimistic guy, they're praising Jesus while they're in the Philippian jail, they end up getting the jailer and his whole family saved, and Paul starts this awesome church, and because of what he did in that area, those those people came into partnership with the Apostle Paul. They said, Paul, what you have done for our city is so valuable to us that we're going to get in a partnership, fellowship relationship with you. We're going to get as close as we can possibly get to you, Paul. That's intense. Look at the commitment that these people had. 
that they made this commitment to the establishment of the gospel in their city. You see, it wasn't really just about Paul. It was about the gospel being established in the city of Philippi. Their commitment to the gospel was so strong that it taught them how to honor this man that God had sent to them. They recognized that the plan of God for their city was too big to be carried alone, so they had to partner with Paul. They said, Paul, you have such, God gave you such a burden for the city of such a heart to see the gospel established here, and that's such a big vision that you can't carry it by yourself, Paul, so we're going to come along and partner with you. Are you with me? Is this too uncomfortable? Is this uncomfortable? Okay, good. I just want to make sure. You see, the vision that God puts in your heart, the vision that God puts in my heart to establish his kingdom in an area and in a region, to see the establishment of churches being birthed in different places, it's such a big thing, it's such a big weighty desire, it's such a big vision that it can't possibly be shouldered by one person or by two people or by 10 people. It literally takes the body of Christ coming together and joining in partnership and saying, we believe that what God wants to do in our city is so significant that every one of us has to lay something down in our lives so that we can pursue this awesome call. They recognize the plan of God for their city was too big to be carried alone. They had to partner with Paul. I love what John Maxwell says in uh, in discussing the law of significance. He says, one is too small a number to achieve greatness. Partner up. Isn't that good? One is too small a number to achieve greatness. You and I will never be significant if we're islands unto ourselves. We need each other, guys. We need the connection of the body of Christ coming together. Big things require big partnerships. The gospel's not going to spread itself, guys. Amen. I mean, it's awesome. It's an amazing message. It's the message of the cross. But God specifically designed people to take this message to the world. We need to band together and, it requi- and understand that it requires all of us. The gospel's not going to preach itself. Amen. Those people out there in this community, they're, you know, uh, they're not going to get reached for God if we don't take on a partnership mentality. We are going to reach the high country and beyond because we're learning that we're better together. We're reaching and we're going to continue to reach the high country and beyond because we're learning that we're better together. Partner up with what God is doing here at High Country Christian Church. There's room for you and there's room for your gifting. Amen. There's room for you here. They had partnered since the beginning. Notice, notice the, the last line of verse 5. He says, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Notice that they'd partnered with Paul since the very beginning, since the first time he ever visited that city. And that becomes very powerful in Paul's next statement, which is verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. 
How many of you are glad that God has begun a good thing in you? Amen. Now let me ask you a question. When did God begin a good thing in the Philippian church? Paul just answers that question for us in the previous verse. When they had committed to the gospel and partnered with him, God began something in the city of Philippi when some people gathered around the cause of Jesus and when they saw the vision that Paul had for their city, they got connected to it and praise God, God began a good thing in them. He began to do a good work in them. Now this is such a powerful promise to us in our lives. Think about it for just a second. He that begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Jesus will never abandon what he started in you. Amen. You need to know that. You need to remember that what God started in you, he intends to finish it. He's not going to abandon his plan for your life. Can you say amen? Regardless of where you find yourself, regardless of how many times you missed it, regardless of how many mistakes were made in the, in the course of time and in the, in the space of your life that brought you to this moment, regardless of the past, the future, as far as God's concerned, is certain. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will never give up on you. He will never change his mind about how he feels about you. You need to know that. You need to remember that that is true. Because you know what happens, guys? We get in situations, we get in tight jams, we get in squeezes, we get in problem times, and it's really easy for us to lose sight of the fact that God has a plan, that God has a purpose for your life. He doesn't just have a plan for you. He has a purpose for you. That's even better. Amen. Some plans people make don't really have a whole lot of purpose attached to them. But God has a purpose for your life. You fit in his design. You fit in his scheme for this planet. You fit, you know, like the Bible says, you were born for such a time as this. Don't ever, don't ever rue the day that you live in. Don't ever be sad for the moment that you're invited into because God put you here on purpose, his purpose for such a time as this. And the fact of the matter is, he, whatever he began in you, he will complete it in you. God is committed to his plan for your life, and he was committed to his plan for your life before your life even started. Listen to what Psalm 139 says in the New Living Translation, verse 16 and 17. Listen to this. Just listen. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the very grains of sand. And when I wake up, you're still there with me. You could, you could even go to sleep and dream about how big the plans of God are. And when you wake up, you find that he's been there with you the whole time. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He saw you before you were born. He ordained you. He, he created you with intentionality. Amen. With the love and the compassion of a father. 
From God's perspective, your success in his kingdom is a foregone conclusion. I want to say it again. From God's perspective, your success in his kingdom is a foregone conclusion. His plan for you is so magnificent that if you even get the slightest glimpse of it, it will cause you to dream so much bigger than you've ever dreamed before. To realize how special and how significant you are is an amazing thing. And, and one of the unfortunate things is that for so many years we've been taught that we as, as human beings, you know, we, we, without Christ, we fall short of the glory of God. Without Christ, our heart is exceedingly wicked, right? Without Jesus, we're a mess. And for so long, we've been taught to identify with that condition, so that even after we get saved, we still think like a mess. We still think like somebody whose heart ex- was exceedingly wicked. The only difference is now that we're in Christ, my heart's not exceedingly wicked anymore. My heart's not exceedingly bad, and th- I'm not always thinking evil thoughts. Now I want what God wants for my life. And so we have to, be, we have to, to shift our perspective a little bit so that we understand that God's desire for us in his kingdom is a desire for success. He wants you to succeed in what he's called you to do. And you can't let yourself, you know, pull back and go, well, I just, I'm afraid to succeed because I'm afraid that if I succeed, I'm going to fail God. When you realize God is more committed to his own plan for you than you are. Amen. His plan for you is so significant that if you even catch the slightest glimpse of it, It'll cause you to dream so much bigger. Listen to what God told the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1. Again, from the New Living Translation, he says, I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. Before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you as my prophet to the nations. Again, God is more committed to your success than you are. A lot of times we miss out on this because we have this fear that we shouldn't appreciate success and blessing when God brings them into our lives. But nothing could be further from the truth. The reality is we don't have to be afraid of success because God's more committed to us succeeding than we are most of the time. Amen. You don't have to fear the promise of God coming to pass in your life. Most people, in my experience and in what I've seen in my life up to this point, most people miss out on God's best for their lives for one of two reasons. Fear and fatigue. Fear and fatigue. They get right to the edge and they either get afraid to succeed in God. They either get afraid of what it will look like when his promise actually comes to pass or they get really tired. I heard a, a preacher say once, he said, nine out of ten ministries that I've watched fail gave up right before their moment of breakthrough. Right before their moment of breakthrough, they pulled back. 
And it's for, it's for only one of two reasons. Either you get afraid of what your life will look like once the promise comes to pass, which is really crazy because think about it. You've been standing on the word of God for so long, believing for breakthrough in this area, going, yes, I believe God's word. I'm gonna, I'm gonna hold fast to this and I'm gonna see his promise come to pass and then we get right on the doorstep of it and we back off because we're afraid of what it'll look like for the promise of God to actually come to pass in our lives. Paul's not afraid of that. He says, no, on the contrary, the one who began a good thing in you is actually going to complete it in your life. He's going to see his plan come to pass in your life because he's committed to it. Notice that Paul says, if we can put verse 6 back up on the screen, notice that Paul starts this out by saying, being confident of this very thing. Notice that Paul is confident of this truth. He's learned that God doesn't change. And it's given him some confidence. The word confidence here in the Greek is the word which means to persuade or be persuaded. So we could read it this way. Being persuaded of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will also complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul had been persuaded of the goodness of God. If you're taking notes, I want you to write that one down. Paul had been persuaded of the goodness of God. This Greek word is so significant here. It's so important. Persuasion takes time. Persuasion takes time. Especially the older you get and the more cynical you become. It gets harder and harder to persuade you of anything. Kids are easy to persuade. Adults sometimes take a little bit more work, right? How many of you have ever had to, had to have God really persuade you of something? Well, persuasion takes time. And perhaps the reason that you and I are often not persuaded of the goodness of God's plans for us is that we just haven't spent enough time being persuaded by him and by his word. I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't talk about this verse without talking about this, verse, this word confident. Paul has been utterly persuaded that God is good and his plan is good and that his commitment to his own plan is so strong that he's committed to seeing his goodness come to pass in your life. Even when you are not committed, even when you fall off the wagon, even when you step back and things get ugly, God remains committed to your success. He remains committed to his plan for you because he loves you so much. And Paul had taken enough time to be totally persuaded of that. I have a question for you, and this is a challenging question. How can I get committed to God's promise for my life if I only hear it 40 minutes on a Sunday morning and then I hear the opposite for the rest of the week? How? How's that going to happen? If I, if I only ever engage for a few minutes in church here or online, or if I'm only ever engaging in the promises of God for a few minutes a week, and then I allow myself to listen to the opposite for the rest of the week, 
I mean, what if you ate one portion of broccoli on Sundays and then you just ate Krispy Kremes for the rest of the week? Would you be healthy? No, you would have ulcers. You would be dying, right? I mean, what if I only ever invested just enough time for one little ray of light from God's word to penetrate my heart, but then I allowed the rest of my week to snuff that out? It's, it, it has nothing to do with the power and the potency of God's word. God's word is what created the universe. It's the strongest thing in the world. So it doesn't take a whole lot. But if I'm investing myself in the opposite, I'm going to miss out on God's plan for my life. I've got to take time to allow God to instill in me the confidence from his word. I've got to give God's word a chance to persuade me the way Paul did. That is so significant. And the re- one of the reasons I think it's so significant is because sometimes as Christians, we, we do our own selves a disservice because we come to church or we hear a soundbite on, on the you know, Instagram or we hear a sermon or something and we hear it one time and we know enough to agree with what we've heard and then that's where we stop. Right. I'm telling you, you and I have got to learn to get to the place where God's word totally refashions our belief system, our inner core belief system. This is why the people that I've known in my life to have gone very far in the things of God, people who've been really successful in God's kingdom, in whatever area, they were the kind of people who took the word and made it the only thing they would permit themselves to listen to or be exposed to or understand so that their faith could rise up and they were actually able to be convinced and persuaded by God's word. I remember hearing about a minister who one time he, uh, or excuse me, not one time, when he, when he understood that he was called to the ministry, he'd been to Bible college, but he knew that he was called to preach, and so what he did is he went and got all the tape series of this other minister that he trusted. He went to this guy's, one of his meetings, and bought everything that he had. And he said, I'm going home, I'm gonna lock myself in my house, and all I'm gonna do is listen to these tapes and take notes. And he spent 90 days immersing himself in the word. He just immersed himself in the truth of God's word and what he came out of those 90 days with cannot be taken from him now because he's been persuaded. Amen. How do you learn a language quickly? Anybody want to know? You get immersed in the culture that that language speaks. The reason we don't get our prayers answered is because we're not immersed in the language of the kingdom that we belong to. Paul is convinced. He's persuaded. He says, I'm confident of this thing, that the one who began something good in you is the one who's going to bring it to pass, and nobody can steal that confidence from Paul. I want you this week to get so laser focused on the fact that God's good and perfect plan is for you. I want you to block everything else out and get laser focused on the fact that God's plan for you is good. His plans are to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a hope and to give you a future. He said, call unto me and I'll answer you and I'll show you great and mighty things that you have no idea about. 
whether we realize it or not. Now I got to go find my place back in Philippians. I got excited there. Whether we realize it or not, guys, we're constantly being persuaded by the things around us. Some of the persuasion is ethical. Some of it's not ethical. But we'd be foolish to think it's not going on. I want us to get laser focused this week on the fact that God is good to the degree that we become so convinced of it so that next time the devil tries to call you a failure or tries to call you a loser or tries to call you an outcast, something in your heart rises up and says, no, he who began a good thing in me is gonna be the same one that's gonna complete that thing in the day of Christ Jesus. Be confident, be persuaded by the goodness of God. Notice that he puts a time limit on this. And we're going to close with this. This is we're going to land the plane now. We're we're descending. Put your tray tables up. (laughs) He's going to complete this until the day of Jesus Christ. What is the day of Jesus Christ? What does that mean? In the Old Testament, that was a word they would have been afraid of. The day of the Lord is mentioned all throughout the Old Testament, or all throughout the Bible, quite frankly, and in the Old Testament, it was something that they feared because it was a day of judgment. It was the day when God, you know, wraps this whole thing up, and it's the last day on earth, and everybody's getting ready to get judged, and God's going to, you know, put you on the scales and see if you measure up. The day of the Lord in the Old Covenant is a scary day. The day of Jesus Christ in the New Covenant is a happy day. It's an eventual, it speaks of the eventual return of Jesus to gather us as his church. It's a day of blessing and it's a day of reward. It's our heavenly hope. It's what we await for with eager anticipation. You don't need to be afraid of Jesus coming back. You need to get excited about Jesus coming back. You see, a lot of us, if we, if we let this verse actually speak to us, here's what it would do. It would cause you and I, if we let this verse really influence us, it would cause you and I to get laser-focused on the plan of God for our lives, laser-focused on the fact that he is good, and laser-focused on the fact that we're going to do everything in our power to bring about the return of Jesus. And that when we got to the day when he returned, we would be so excited and so ready. A lot of people, oh, can I just meddle with you for... 10 more seconds before we shut down. A lot of people get so, they, 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 they do two things, okay, when they start to think about the return of Jesus. They either get terrified of that and go, oh, ooh, Jesus is coming back. Ooh, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. The rapture. Ooh. People get freaked out or they get an escapist mentality. Oh, Jesus, hurry up. Would you just hurry up and come here so you can get us all out of here? I'm worn out. The devil's been kicking my butt Sunday to Sunday. I just got no gas left in the tank. God, could you just hurry up and get here? My God. 
We, we embrace one of those two realities, and Paul is trying to get us to have a different mindset, to think in terms of God being good, and of his plan being valuable, and of him working his plan in our life so that we become hyper, hyper effective gospel agents on the planet so that we can actually have a hand in ushering in the return of Christ Jesus. That's his heart for you. His heart for you is that you get so radically committed to him that you experience his phenomenal goodness from now until Jesus comes back, which is when he flips a switch and you really start to experience his phenomenal goodness. This is Paul's prayer for the Philippians. This is how he opens the letter. Now do you see how much he loved them? Do you see how much he favored them? He spoke to them in ways that he didn't speak to the other people. He didn't speak to the Colossians the way he talked to the Philippians. He didn't talk to the Thessalonians the way he talked to the Philippians. These are his people. These are his insiders. This is Paul's inner circle of people that were so committed to the gospel that they said, Paul, we'll do anything you need us to do because we love Jesus so much. And because of what Jesus did through your ministry in our city, it's so valuable to us that we will lay our lives down. Paul, what do you need? We're committed. God is my witness, verse 8 says, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray that your love may also abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things which are excellent and that you may be sincere and without offense. We could take days and talk about what it means to be sincere and without offense. But I've already preached to you more than I should today. Verse 11 says, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. This is Paul's opening prayer. This is his opening intention for us that we understand these things. And if you and I will learn to understand what we talked about today, the rest of the book of Philippians is gonna feel so much heavier and weightier. Not heavy in a bad way, heavy in a good way. You'll understand why when we get to chapter three, Paul is gonna say, forgetting those things which are behind, I press towards the mark. We're gonna understand why he says later in this chapter, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Well, there's so, many, there's so many nuggets we haven't even gotten to yet and they're gonna be so good. We're gonna understand why he says in chapter four, he says that my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. Of course he would, Paul, because we found out that he's committed to our success in chapter one. Everything that he's gonna unpack is gonna be so valuable to us when we remember that God is good and he loves us and whatever he started in you, he's gonna finish it. Don't get weary, don't get afraid, don't get fatigued. He's gonna accomplish it. Glory to God. Would you stand up to your feet this morning? We hope that this message inspired you and filled your heart with faith. If you would like to visit our church, 
check out www.highcountrychristian.com for service times and location information. Thanks again for listening to this audio presentation from High Country Christian Church, where Jesus loves you, we love you, and your life counts.